Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and this is The Grim Sleeper Part 2. So on January 30th, 1988, 27-year-old graphic artist Karen Toshima gets caught in the crossfire of two rival gang members in Westwood Village. Now, the Mansfield Hustle Crips began taunting Baby Rock Collins, who was a member of the Roland 60s Crips. Collins pulls out a gun and aims it at his rival but misses, accidentally shooting Karen in the temple. Immediately, there was a $25,000 reward for anyone who had information, and the police presence in West L.A. tripled. Politicians and locals were outraged that violence had reached their precious neighborhoods, and article after article could be read on how Karen's death had awoken the city to the issue of gang violence, but yet there was still no regard to the soaring number of gang-related homicides that had been occurring in South Central. Karen's name would be in every paper and news segment, and in no time, her killer was caught. The thing about this is, a few hours before this gang rivalry and the shooting which resulted in Karen's death, Latricia Jefferson was raped, shot to death, and dumped in an alley. She was found with a napkin over her face and someone had written AIDS in capital letters on it. Latricia Jefferson wasn't mentioned in a single news article and there was no media coverage of her death. But this was normal for Black women and their deaths were silent and horrific due to the way the media and the police viewed them. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. Okay, y'all, let's go ahead and get into this episode, and I have brought on a special guest. Y'all may know her as Coach AJ, but this is my partner, and I have brought her black ass onto this episode (laughs) so we can go through the rest of the Grim Sleeper case. AJ, do you want to tell the new followers and listeners about you? What's up, y'all? I'm Coach AJ, also AKA her partner. Uh, I'm a life coach. Actually, I'm the dopest life coach ever. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I gave like, myself that name. That's what's up. As but, you should. Uh, as I should, right? And uh, you could find me on Instagram at uh, dope life coach underscore. And you can find me on TikTok at dope life coach. Excellent. And I'll also make sure to plug your information in the show notes. So appreciate that. appreciate that. And you did listen to part one, right? If you fucking I, didn't, you better lie. I, Jesus, I did listen to part one. <laughs> okay. All right, great. And actually, uh, so for y'all who do not know, we have been looking into the Grim Sleeper for months at this point. And yeah. we had watched um I first watched the documentary that's available on YouTube. And then I think you watched it too. I, okay, it's it's not a matter of thinking. I was told to watch it. Let's let's keep it a buck. <laughs> My bad. So but you did, in, in essence. I did. You did. Yes, I did. Okay, yeah. I mean, it, it is a very horrific case. Um, but I believe, yeah, I left off with the brutal murder of Princess. What are you thinking yes. of the Grim Sleeper so far? And mind you... I have not revealed who the Grim Sleeper is. I'm leaving oh. the listeners in the dark, just like how South Central LA was left in the dark. Right. What, are you, what are your thoughts so far? I mean, as most of the cases that, okay, people need to understand whenever Kay is working on a case, I'm also working on the case. And so I'm getting educated throughout the process. And the one thing that I've learned the most, especially with this case, is how the system just really fails. 
like just the system really, is fucked up. It's just they just you know these women were being you know like they were abused and this is not TikTok. We can definitely say that they were raped. They were raped and brutally, you know, brutally uh, sexual assaulted. And like the system just kind of just saw them, well, they're just such and such. So you know what? They're not of importance. Also, based off of the demographics of where they were residing as well. Like they just did not give a fuck. And Mm -hmm. it's heartbreaking how the system had all the evidence like almost staring at them. But if they had just applied a bit of the work, just apply the bit of work. It wouldn't have lasted as as long as it did. Like shit. I'm actually impressed at that because yeah, you're absolutely fucking correct. Um, I feel like this shit should have been hemmed up in the '80s. So the fact that it did last this long is horrific. It's fucked up. Okay. Yeah. I was just saying it's <laughs> fucked up. Like it's just, look, it's fucked up because it's like you. The more that you tell me about these cases and like these police had little evidence and then they occur again. I'm like, so you need to tell me this all could have been prevented after like the, from the first or the second time, like y'all are just sitting there on your ass, twiddling your thumbs. Come on now. Yeah. They were sitting there popping each other's assholes in 88 when uh, Anitria uh, Washington survived her, you know, her interaction with the Grim Sleeper. Yeah. I fucking said it. Listen, yeah. This is explicit. So Y'all, so I'm not going to hold y'all. This is going to be a doozy still because there are other murders that we have to cover up, that that I have to cover before getting into how the Grim Sleeper was caught and before I reveal who he is. Now, before we get into anything else, big shout out to FlyFine50 on TikTok. I have COVID, y'all, so I've been sounding like Louis Armstrong. So this episode was supposed to come out on <laughs> This episode was supposed oh, to come out on Wednesday. <laughs> fuck off but yes (laughs) yeah fly fine 50 gave me the best advice to you know try to bring my voice back and not sound so ragged uh now i just have to get through this without huffing and puffing um but again thank you so much to fly fine 50 on tiktok it took some consistency but i think we can get through this so Now, I want to do a little recap quickly. So between 1984 and 2007, Black women were being murdered in South Central Los Angeles, and more than one serial killer was active. But these murders, like the Grim Sleeper killings, uh, they shared similarities, sexual assault, and a shot to the chest with a .25 pistol. In part one, I covered the murder of Sharon Dismuke, Deborah Jackson, Henrietta Wright, Barbara Ware, Bernita Sparks, Mary Lowe, and Georgia Thomas. I also went over the account of Anitria Washington and how she survived, and then I ended on the brutal murder of Princess Bertomio. Now, I glazed over Latricia Jefferson, Inez Warren, and Alicia Alexander, but I have decided to tell y'all about them and how they died. You know, my lungs are kind of working now, so, um, you know, I have my voice back, and I don't want to leave their stories out. Uh, So let me see... So Latricia, Inez, and Alicia were murdered in 1988 after Mary Lowe was murdered in 1987 and before the attempted attack on Anitria Washington in 1988. Mm. So let's go back a little bit and just let you know, uh, AJ, babe, this this episode just got long than a bitch. All right. (laughs) I just want to prepare you. Uh, So yeah, if I get to huffing and puffing, y'all bear with me. So we're going to scale it back to January 30th, 1988, 
around 9.20 a.m., a foot is discovered sticking out from underneath the mattress. And this was (laughs) a foot. A a human foot is discovered sticking out of a mattress. And this is located at 2049 West 102nd Street. This foot was discovered by a woman named Bertha Johnson. Now, Bertha, she lifts up this mattress and she finds human remains. And, you know, per the accounts, like her screams woke up the goddamn neighborhood as it should have. I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Just like imagine you're minding your business and then, you know, you see a fucking foot. <laughs> yeah, like what did you do? Be calm. Yeah, like no, definitely not be calm. And this was around nine twenty a.m. Like birthday ain't even had a chance to have some goddamn coffee. No, sleep on her eye yet. Yeah, she ain't even got to sleep on her eye, and she's co- she's discovering a body. Now, a neighbor named Randy Loggins, he wakes up and he comes downstairs. Like, what the fuck is going on? He probably thought Bertha was crazy. Now, they immediately called the sheriff's department. The body that they had discovered belonged to 22-year-old Latricia Jefferson. She was wearing a green dress, a maroon coat, white stockings, and sandals. She was lying on her back near a cinder block. And what really just gave me, mind you, like her murder is enough to cause anyone a visceral reaction. But somebody had placed a napkin on her face And the handwritten word of AIDS in capital letters was written on that napkin. And they put that napkin on the face of this 22-year-old woman. Now, it wasn't until Latricia was taken to the medical examiner that they discovered that she had been shot twice in the left side of her chest with a .25 caliber pistol. Fingerprints were used to identify Latricia. And also, now's a good time to mention another running theme with these murders were that they were all Jane Doe's at first Mm -hmm. because none of the bodies were found with identification. So a lot of these families, like, they just knew one day, like, hey, this, this is the last time I, you know, talked to this person and I haven't seen them for months because they were Jane Doe's in the system. Yeah. Yeah, so now a little bit about Latricia. As a kid, she was outgoing and loved activities like dancing, singing, and going to the beach. She had dreams of becoming a pediatrician and would have been on her way had she not fallen into hard times and ended up on the streets of South Central. Now, Latricia's mother, Wanda Hutton, had recurring dreams that her daughter would end up dead. And what I read, like, yeah, like her account, like what she said, like, She's basically kept trying to tell Latricia, like, get your ass out these goddamn streets. Get your but, shit together, yeah. But Latricia, like, she would always hit back playfully, like, hey, I do what I want. And they said that she was living her life as if she was invincible. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, LAPD, LASD treated her as if she was invincible She as was well. invincible, yeah. Yeah, invisible to them. Now, uh, let me see. So now Wanda and Latricia's father, his name is James. Now they were as supportive as they could be, but they were in ruin, you know, after her body was found and it was determined that it did belong to Latricia. So now moving on to Inez Warren, she was 28 years old when she was murdered on August 15th, 1988. She was found in in the Gramercy Park alleyway located at the, you know what? I wrote this down. So 10300, isn't that 10,300th block? Yeah. 
Are you sure? <laughs> and y'all not cutting this shit out either. Y'all better forgive Sorry, what was me. One zero zero what? One zero three zero zero. I mean, like typing this. When I worked as a nine one one dispatcher, they would cuss me blind because I would be calling in like some of the things you know to the fire department, and I would be saying you know the block wrong. <laughs> You know what? Crazy as it is, it's bringing up Canadian stuff. You know I'm in Canada, girl. <laughs> I'm screaming. Okay, so yeah, we're gonna say 10300 block of Western Avenue, okay? So now mm. the person who called 911, they chose to remain anonymous and said he watched as some guys dropped off a girl in the alley. Now, Inez was found with a gunshot wound to her chest and suffered blunt force trauma to her head. Detective John Skaggs was a patrol officer for LAPD at the time, and he was first to arrive on scene, and Inez was actually alive. Now, the bullet hole was through and through, and but it was never recovered. Now, the size of the hole was consistent with the .25 caliber pistol. Okay, I had to get my, I had to get my oxygen back to my damn lungs, so... Inez Warren, uh, she did die at Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital. And then three weeks later, Alicia Monique Alexander was murdered. And this just breaks my heart. Like, it's the fact that LAPD and LASD, they set the fucking tone with these murders. So these Black men can target you know, like literally hunting their own goddamn backyards because LAPD and LASD sets the precedence that black sex workers, black women suffering from the illness of, of drug mm-hmm. addiction are not cared about. But yeah, these families, they were ruined. They Jeez. were ruined after this. So Alicia Monique Alexander, she was born on June 12th, 1970 to Porter and Mary Alexander. Porter moved to Los Angeles after being stationed in Hawaii with the U.S. military. And that's when he met Mary and her two children. I believe it's Kevin, but it's it's Kevin spelled with two E's and Anita in 1962. Now they had their first child, Donnell, in 1963, and they married in October of that year. After having Monique, everything just came together and the family was complete, you know, like between the half siblings and the siblings that they had together. Now, mm-hmm. the kids got along and they were inseparable. And from a young age, like Porter and Mary could tell that Monique was special. She was intelligent. She was kind. She was nurturing and so affectionate and always taking care of other people. And Porter and Monique, like they shared a special bond and he called her his road dog. And that's Aww. just that's just so special. Now, wherever Porter was, Monique was right behind him. It didn't matter. The moment that he walked out that door, Monique was right behind him. And I know that her first name is Alicia, but a lot of these reports and family and friends, they refer to her as Monique. Now, okay. Mary worked the day shift for a company who sold airplane parts. And Porter, he worked third shift at the post office. And these kids were adored by Mary and Porter. But he also used, like, you know, like, people have been in the military. That's typically how they, you know, do discipline. But this family was so filled with love. And these kids, they stayed the fucking line. Now, things took a turn in 87 when the family's house was lit up with gunfire. And I'm actually going to plug the book that I got all all of this information from. Um, But yeah, there was gunfire in the back of the house. And Donnell, Monique's brother, 
uh, was shot in the leg and ended up having to grapple with the shooter for the weapon so he couldn't do more damage. So it looks as if there was a break-in as well. Yeah. Yeah, so Monique was the one who had to call 911, but this really shook the family. And a year later, Monique had her first run-in with the law, and this is where we can begin to see her spiral. At the age of 18, mm. she was being groomed, and no other reporter is going to say it, but I'm going to what? fucking say it. She was being groomed by a 28-year-old motherfucker named Ronnie Lewis, and he How basically she 18. This baby was 18 years old. Like, you're <sighs> almost 30, sir. What the fuck do you want what the fuck are you with doing? somebody who's, yeah, whose frontal 18. lobes haven't even fused together yet? Like, what the fuck are you really doing here? But That's you'll so see a lot of like, predator behavior. And the running theme through all of these cases is that there was always an older man preying on these girls when they were younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Ronnie Lewis, basically, he introduced her to the world that was different than the one that Porter had raised her in. Now, Monique went missing on September 2nd, and her body was found six days later by children walking through an alley at 1720 West 43rd Place. This 18-year-old baby was found by a dog who had begun sniffing near a blue mattress. Now, underneath the mattress was her nude body. Monique was in the advanced stages of decomp and at the time was labeled as a Jane Doe until her prince came back. Like I said, she had had like a run-in with the law. So her prince were mm-hmm. already in the system. They had a prince already. Exactly. And so they were able to find a small caliber gunshot wound that was located under her left breast. And it was confirmed that she had been shot with a .25 pistol. Now, Monique's death ruined Porter and Mary and Donnell too. And I wanted to add this information because I thought it was really interesting and sad. So Donnell would actually end up missing his sister's funeral. And it was all because he thought he had gotten her killed. So Donnell, he, he had made a mistake. He had made a mistake and he had committed a robbery during a drug deal. So he believed that that mistake had led to the murder of his sister So he fessed up, he went to Porter about it, and Porter said, if you know anything about your sister's disappearance and murder, you need to go to the police. So let me tell you what the police did. So these assholes, they arrest Donnell for a previous warrant, and they didn't allow him to make Monique's funeral. Yeah. And, and, And that's what I'm saying. Like, I understand, like, he's fessing up to committing a crime, but- they didn't even hem him up on the robbery during the drug deal. They got him on a bench warrant about something else. And that a really goes warrant. and that really goes to show like what these, you know, the coalition fighting against uh black serial murders, um, that really goes to what they were talking about, which is that if you try to come forward with information, the police are going to criminalize you and they're gonna hem you up on whatever the fuck they think they got. That is in no relation. So a lot of people who knew something about the Grim Sleeper didn't come forward because they were scared. They're terrified that they would end up in jail for something else. Like exactly. In... Wow. Again, yep. as I said before, the system is what fails every time for these women. Like every time. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And I just think like I put it in the notes, like coming forward was so 
admirable. Like I just told y'all about Lisa Renee and how her brothers did everything but tell the fucking truth. If you don't know who Lisa Renee is, um, she ended up being a target because of a drug deal gone bad. Her brothers ran off with money, didn't produce the drugs. So the drug dealers went and took Lisa Renee. They raped her, murdered her. They buried her alive. But knowing this information, the brothers still didn't come forward. But it's just the fact that like Donnell, he fessed up and told his dad. Both of them agreed he should go to the police. Then he was criminalized further by the police and then ended up missing his sister's funeral. I just feel like that is just heartbreaking. So after Monique's murder, the police got their big break because of Anitra Washington, who gave them the info on the orange pinto. So let me see. The way I'm just trying to make sure I got this whole timeline right. So y'all going to have to bear with me for a second. Impromptu. But I think y'all need to understand how many hours this woman spends on research. <laughs> like it's when I'm important. Being, and so like when you guys tune in, you're getting like hours and hours of work, of research. Like hours. Sometimes days actually. Yeah. This, Sometimes yeah. I think I first watched the Grim Sleeper documentary in what? April, I think. Jesus, watched, yeah. Yeah, you watched it in and April. And that was and... one of the viral TikToks, yeah. I watched it. I just couldn't believe that these motherfuckers had a sister mm-hmm. room sleeper, but we'll get to that in a bit. So, yeah, I'm back where, yeah, now we can pick up, you know, back where I left off in part one, which was the brutal murder of Princess Bertomio. But I want to put it into perspective how long these killings had gone on and how short Princess's life was. So Princess was born on the 13th of August in 1986. That was the day after Henrietta Wright's body was found. Damn. She she, She was born and died during the timeline of the Grim Sleeper killings. Wow. Like, I saw that and, like, my jaw hit the floor. Like, and it really just puts it into perspective. Her life was so brutal and fucking short. And the police could have had this shit hemmed up in the 80s. Like, that baby should still be here. She should should still be here. And then imagine if they, as I said, imagine if they actually did their job in the beginning of when this was all happening in the 80s. Mm -hmm. She would... I mean, we don't know, but she could have been still here, definitely still here on this earth. That's for sure. Wow. That little tidbit, I was shocked. I had to like sit for like a second and like really like, you mean I'm sitting there like, Jesus, like in the midst of the fuckery that was going around, she this baby was was born born. and died during the Grim Sleeper killings. Yeah. So. Ooh, let me get, I got chills. Let me get my shit together. So yeah, again, that should really put it into perspective. Now, Princess, after running away on December 21st, 2001, Ronnie, her foster mother, reported her missing to the Hawthorne Police Department. It turns out that a pimp turned Princess into sex work. And that is what she did up until her murder in March of 2002. Now, around this time, a 35-year-old taxi cab driver was about to be on trial for her rape. So that should also really talk to how these grown ass men were preying on these Mm -hmm. women. 
And it's really just disgustingly sad. So Princess remained a Jane Doe until September and her foster family really had to wait a long time just to know what had happened to her. And it was the worst of the fucking worst. So uh, Princess Cheyenne Bertomio's remains, they are interred at the Inglewood Park Cemetery in Inglewood, California. So criminals to be ruled out during the timeline of the Grim Sleeper investigations were Roger Houseman, the Fresno Repo Man, Donald Ray Burdine, Dennis Pinckney, Ricky Ross, and Jimmy Lewis. Ricky Ross was a former deputy for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And the Grim Sleeper murders, they used to have a more informal name, and that's the Strawberry Murders, which is basically slang for women who exchange sex for drugs. And I mentioned in part one that the bodies, they were dropping like flies in the 80s. And those bodies mainly belonged to Black sex workers and Black women who suffered from drug addiction. Now, between Mm -hmm. the Grim Sleeper and the Southside Slings, the Strawberry Murders, it was like a blanket that covered up all of these murders. Right. So in a four-year period, 52 sex workers were killed. And these deaths happened after the murder of Deborah Jackson. And I just thought that was insane. That is insane. Yeah, and the difference in the murders was that the modus operandi with the weapon was not the same. Uh, So some of them were murdered with the .25 caliber pistol. Others had just been raped and strangled. Others, you know, had suffered more horrific and brutal ends. Now, 34 of the 52 murders remain unsolved. And at one point, they thought Ricky Ross's ass was responsible. So back in 1989, 40-year-old Ricky Ross worked in narcotics for the sheriff's department. One day, police passed by his car, and he's having sex with the sex worker. No. And he was... (laughs) Wait a minute. He was a deputy, correct? Correct. And they passed what car? Like, the deputy car? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Sorry. And he was having sex with a sex with the dip. Like, what the fuck? You know what? Yes. Um, yes. And actually, let me just recant that previous statement. I'm unclear on if it was the deputy car or if it was his personal car, but it was the deputy sheriff. But it's the, the, the sheriff's deputy. department. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not just getting, you getting hemmed up by your co-worker? Like, Yeah. And mind you, when it came to Ricky Ross, they actually wanted to keep that under wraps. So, and he was also intoxicated. Now, later, this woman would say that she began to fear for her life because Ricky said he had to get something from the trunk during their interaction. Police look in the trunk and they find a weapon. And through ballistic testing, they link that gun to three murders that had occurred in 88. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now this is when Ricky became a suspect in the Strawberry Murders, but it was discovered that there was a ballistic error, and it was determined that he had been wrongfully um, wrongfully arrested. And to that, I say that that is very weird. Uh, <laughs> still, that seems suspicious. Ain't that suspicious? Like, I was reading that shit, and I was just like, um, you know... But they said yeah. that it was a ballistic error. And mind ballistic you, y'all, y'all might hear right. some creaky-ass chairs. I apologize for that. <laughs> Why are we talking about our chairs? Because I just creaked, and then I heard you creak, and I'm like, fuck, we're fucking this audio up. But 
the content is good. It's still the context good. is good, yeah. But back to the fact that they lost the, or they threw out the man's ballistics, basically, that's what they did. They said because, that there was a ballistic error and it was determined uh, that he had been wrongfully arrested. No blood ballistic error. They just they didn't want to face the backlash of the embarrassment. Their deputy is out here with a weapon that got has links to murders from the 88. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Black girl true crime can't afford no lawsuit. Yeah, we can't afford no lawsuit right now. Okay. Spotify paying me, but know. I'm not getting paid that much. As I said, um, we don't know. That was so that allegedly, allegedly. 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 Yes, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly, people think he, he was dabbling in some fuckery. So now the community, they already were not fucking with the authorities due to the lack of response and communication with communities. So once a cop was arrested, it was basically over. And this is despite Ricky being innocent. But how innocent was he for real? Because LAPD and the Sheriff's Department had already shown South Central how they felt about Black people, Black prostitutes, Black drug addicts, and had no issue sexually exploiting them. And I think I also said in part one, like, don't think that drugs were just in South Central. They were running through LEPD, LASD, just as much as these Black communities. But the Black communities got criminalized. So, mm-hmm. like, let's just keep it a buck. So, exactly. So, there are women who had interactions with the Grim Sleeper who were too terrified to come to the police. Because, again, if you called 911 for help, the police would try to hem you up on a prostitution yeah. and a drug charge first. So there was zero trust in the police at this time. But let's get into the next victim, Valerie McCorvey. So what people don't know is that prior to Valerie's murder, the person responsible for the Grim Sleeper murders was already incarcerated due to his nasty habit of stealing cars. So the Grim Sleeper was facing up to three years in prison due to criminal activity that spanned the past three decades. But due to a plea agreement, he was sentenced to jail for 270 days, and that's about nine months. The Grim Sleeper walked the streets again due to overcrowding in the jails. So he was released May of 2003, and two months later, the body of Valerie McCorvey was found in a roadway adjacent to an alley near a school by a crossing guard named Betty Walker in the, West, in the Westmont neighborhood of L.A. So this, they had this motherfucker in their clutches. They, they had, him. had him. They had him. But they had technically, him. due to a technicality, he was released. If they actually were to do the, it correctly and not abuse a bunch of Black people, they could actually have a very dangerous human being behind bars, the DNA, he wouldn't have had been released. But that's just that's crazy. So basically due to police brutality, white supremacy, racism, racial yep. bias. Okay. Yep. Now... <clears throat> I can't stand you. So. What about <laughs> Nothing. I appreciate your presence on this podcast episode. Ah, oh, well, thank you for having me, darling. Come on now. Educate. <laughs> Educate you, I will. So. Betty was just arriving to work at 108th Street, and this was near Denver Avenue. When a car pulls up and advises her to call the police because he saw a body in an alley that was nearby. Mind you, it's 6.35 in the fucking morning, and everything had happened so fast that she didn't get a good look at the man in the car, who basically sped the fuck off. 
Like this lady is putting on her crossing guard vest so she can mm. go do her job. And this motherfucker says like, hey, there's a, ba- there's a body in the alley. So Betty walks to the alley and sure enough, there was a body dressed in a navy blue leotard that was pulled down, exposing her breasts. And leotards, um, I believe they usually clip down between your thighs, but that was pulled up as well. And the body had brown pants that were at the knees exposing her buttocks and a sweater was covering her head. So Betty calls 911 and the homicide unit. They arrived to secure the scene and cover the body. And it was clear that, number one, this is the body of Valerie McCorvey. But right. also she had been pushed from a moving vehicle. And this, and you can tell, like, this is clear because of the position of her body. Like, she was crumpled up. Like, her arms was, like, behind her head. And it was just clear that she was pushed out of a moving vehicle. And then also there was road rash that was on the top of her left shoulder, her arm, and her clavicle. Now, petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes suggested that she had been strangled. Trace trace evidence was taken from Valerie's clothes. And now we're at a point where DNA testing, as well as, you know, breaking down these crime scenes, it's getting a lot better. So they took the trace evidence from her clothes. And while there was no sign of blunt force trauma, there was a bite mark on her left breast. Now, medical examiner Dr. Daryl Garber performed Valerie's autopsy, and her cause of death was ligature strangulation. Around her neck was a necklace that was used to strangle her, and they said that Valerie would have clawed at it for minutes before it killed her. What is so sad is that there aren't many who survived this motherfucker, and Valerie's legacy, if you look up her name, the first things that are going to pop up is that, you know, she had a record or she was addicted to drugs or that she was, you know, a sex worker. But Valerie had two children named Symphony and Matthew. And during the time that she was sober, she spent her time working in a drug facility to help other addicts. And that is information that you have to really search to find, unfortunately. Now, while no bullet was used to murder Valerie, on May 31st, 2005, LAPD detective Cliff Shepard found a match between Valerie and Princess. These samples matched the preserved DNA sample that was taken from Mary Lowe in 1987. And the detectives, they were fucking shocked because this meant that the murderer was back. Mind you, they Mm -hmm. didn't tell the community that there was a serial killer in the 80s. To to begin with. Exactly. So they were just sitting there fucking flabbergasted and they were the only ones. So... Not only that, but prior to the recent murders, it was just these, you know, brutal rapes and then the shot with the .25 caliber. After Princess and Valerie, the detectives really started to see the evolution of the modus operandi as the killings became more intimate and sadistic. So now we get to the last victim that is linked to the case, and her name is Janisha Lavette Peters. She was born December 15th, 1981. And friends and family called her Nisha, but her baby nickname was Baby Gaga. As a child, Janisha loved to dance and would find herself getting into trouble for being mischievous. Tell me why this little girl, she would go into cabinets and she would take the, what the fuck did the labels off of the cans. So so her mother would open up the the cabinets and there would just be a whole bunch of silver cans. Not knowing what is what. Exactly. 
Now, at the age of eight, her along with her sisters, they start this dance group named Ladies at Work. And many of the kids, like, well, not many, like all of the children, like their days were really spent having fun. And that's what I've also noticed with these, with a lot of the victims, like their childhoods Mm -hmm. were fucking fun. It was the the realities that came with growing up and, you know, being in South Central that really just fucked everything up. Now, as Janisha got older, like I said, like reality began to hit because she started to lose her friends one by one to gang violence or to prison sentences. At 19, on February 4th, 2002, she had her first burned her firstborn son, excuse me, and named him Justin. Now, by all accounts, Janisha was a wonderful mother and she had the full support of her family. And by the time Justin turned one years old, she had graduated from adult school. Janisha, she had a dream of becoming a computer programmer. And right after graduating school, she enrolled into Southwest College in Los Angeles. Now, unfortunately, she began the downward spiral of drug addiction and things really took a turn for the worse. Janisha had some stints in jail and she did end up working as a sex worker. Uh, But December of 2006, like things really began to look up. According to Laverne, her mother, uh, she may have found someone to live with, like someone who could potentially take care of her and help her out. Like she had a new place to stay. Justin at the time, so her son was living with family and Janisha's mother had told her like, hey, if you want your son back, you got to get right. Like you got to get it together. Get yourself together. Yeah. Yeah. So Janisha, again, she had found a place to live and all she needed to do at this point was get her old things from her mother's house in Fontana. And so this conversation occurred in December of 2006. And that was the last time anyone heard from her. Now, she never made it to Fontana to retrieve her belongings. And her son, Justin, he never got the the chance to give her the Christmas present. Mm -hmm. And he had carefully wrapped it himself with aluminum foil and red rope. And he never got the chance to give it to her. That just breaks my heart. That makes me so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that really just fucks with you. All right, y'all. Give me a second. I need the oxygen boost. And I need to wet my damn mouth. Thank you. So maybe I'll come with a commercial. How about that? The commercial of hydration, I guess. I'm not getting paid for that shit. What was that? Oh, that was my cup holder. (laughs) The way I just spit everything. (laughs) Why are you screaming on this podcast? I'm sorry. It's a chicken lap for me. Yeah, my my dad's has a little mm-hmm. cup holder. Just a little cup holder. <laughs> Damn, yeah. Hey, listen, if I'm I don't that you said that we should do like a little oxygen commercial. Oxygen ain't paying me a damn dime. But yeah, I will say, if y'all want me to talk about any of y'all products and y'all wanna send me shit, go ahead and do that. Hey. Y'all know my Gmail. Now, all right, I got my breath back into my lungs. So New Year's Day, 2007, around 9 a.m., a homeless man, his name is Randy Hernandez, he's going through garbage bins and alleys, and he was looking for recyclables that he could exchange for cash. 
Now, he stopped at a dumpster that was located at 9508 Southwestern Avenue, and he begins his search when he sees a black plastic bag, and he rips it open to peek inside, and he sees a human hand with painted red nails. So immediately, he makes his way to a payphone, and he dials 911. And so, you know, we know that this is Janisha's body, and it was like her body had been basically put into this black plastic bag and then thrown in a dumpster and then wow. rotten produce was thrown in the dumpster as well as a Christmas tree. So her body was in that bag underneath all of that trash. And that is just Heartbreak. sickening. Yeah. Exactly. So this time, like the detectives, they didn't want to miss any evidence. So her body was transported to the Emmy's office still in the bag that she was found in. Like, they had to put it on a flatbed. They had to put the bag on a flatbed and then transport it to the medical examiner's office. And, yeah, whatever was in the bag, like, surrounding Janisha, they really wanted to make sure that they could secure all of that evidence. So the bag was ripped open, and Janisha was found nude in a fetal position. Her nails were scraped and swabs were taken from her breast, vagina, and anus so that they could perform a DNA analysis. It was determined that Janisha did not die a slow death, y'all. Like, she was shot with a .25 caliber pistol, and the bullet, it severed her spinal cord, and all that did was prevent her from running away. Now, petechial hemorrhaging showed that she had also been strangled, and it's noted in the coroner's report that she spent several minutes gasping for breath as she died and then she was placed into the fetal position and sealed inside of the trash bag with a zip tie now police chief bill bratton he didn't hold a press conference and the news reported her murder as a random stabbing so they misreported her murder <laughs> yep and the police chief he didn't hold a press conference yeah, but the reports say that wow. he had no issue talking about Lindsay Lohan's love life. That is what he spent his time talking about. He was too involved in blogs and what the fuck was going on with everybody else, but failed to hold a press conference for this, you know, young girl who was found in a trash bag in a trash can. So, mm. I know, it's infuriating. So... Detectives, they weren't provided the DNA links until April. So April 27th, 2007, four months after the murder of Janisha Peters, the LAPD Scientific Investigation Division, they sent cold case detective Cliff Shepard a fax. And in the fax, it was stating that there was, there was another DNA link. Now, saliva was found on the plastic zip tie, and it matched DNA that was found at the crime scenes of Princess and Valerie. This DNA also matched the shooting deaths of seven of the women from the 80s. Now, Cliff, he missed the call to action. This motherfucker was off that day. So the document was sent to Detective Dennis Kilcoin, who was the interim supervisor of Special Squad 1, and they handled the high-profile murders and serial cases. At this point, it had been clear since the 80s that many of these cases were linked and that the crimes had been committed by the same man. They could have alerted the communities then, but the detectives instead, now mind you, this is in, what did I say, 2007? They're still keeping this shit a secret, y'all. They quietly formed the 800 task force and Killcoin 
was tasked with running it. Now, after a year, yeah, over a year after this task force was created in August of 2008, the families learned via LA Weekly's article that their loved ones had been murdered by a serial killer and others found out while watching the fucking news. Yeah. (laughs) And some of the families were still left in the dark until they were approached by random ass journalists looking to get the scoop on the grim sleeper. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Wow. That's so foul. So, Janisha's mother, Laverne Peters, and she had known something was off because Janisha's case was transferred from the 77th Division to the 800 Task Force downtown. Laverne said, and I quote, It doesn't take a scientist to figure it out. The city's failure to involve the families stems from the fact that they are poor little Black girls. And Laverne, she says that they weren't forthcoming with her. They had come to her house. And while they were at her house, they didn't tell her the information that they had. So they knowingly and purposefully kept her in the fucking dark. And Porter Alexander, so the father of Alicia Alexander, um, again, who was murdered in 1988, he said, we should have some awareness that it is going on again. Nobody came to us. September of 2008, due to the hard work that the Coalition Fighting Black Serial Murders had put in, LAPD finally acknowledged that the murders were due to a serial killer and they offered a $500,000 reward. Now, the Los Angeles police chief, William Bratton, publicly spoke about the serial killer, but this was the first time a press conference was held for these victims. This was the first time in 2008. So I just did some math and you know what not scary? What? (laughs) So he started, sorry, they, the, the killer, Grim Super started the, the murders in 1984, correct? Yeah, 1984, 1985. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, you know, they're now just starting to acknowledge look into it. And it's 2007, correct? Well, Eight? yeah, 2000, mm, yeah, it was um, 2007 that they started the task force. So they were still keeping it under wraps but they weren't acknowledging it publicly, like to the public until 2008. Right. So my, the reason I'm saying this is I was 19 at the time. When they finally, when they finally started telling the public about the grim sleeper. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) 84 is the year my brother was born. So I was like, wait a minute. I was doing the math. I'm like, this is so wrong. Uh, they had a span of almost 20 uh, yeah like 22 yeah. to 24 fucking years 20 yeah it's like 24 years of this person doing this Disgusting. and now it took them 24 years to speak up it took them too goddamn long to speak up especially when they could have had this motherfucker in 1988 and that is why i never wanted to be forgotten that los angeles knew where the Grim Sleeper lived in 1988. But LAPD thought Anitria Washington was a motherfucking hooker. They thought mm-hmm. she was a sex worker. So they discounted what the fuck she said, and they didn't pay any mind to the composite sketch that you know was laid out based on her account of who picked her up, who raped her, who shot her, and then dropped her fucking off like she was trash. They thought she was a hooker. And yeah. they didn't listen to her. And like, that was in 88. 
Yeah, that was in 88. So when I see people talking about this shit on TikTok, I get infuriated because nah, nah. If you're going to tell the story, tell the whole goddamn thing. Tell the whole thing, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, so... Continue, my dear. <laughs> no worries, so... <clears throat> Excuse me, y'all. So where did I... Okay, yeah, so we get to where the police chief, William Bratton, was finally speaking up about it. Now, up until now, the police have forensic evidence from the crime scenes, but no match to suspects in the FBI uh, DNA database. If they had performed the DNA testing on the Grim Sleeper when he was booked for car theft, they would have had him. Uh, More importantly, again, as I just said, if they had listened to Anitra Washington, they would have had him in 1988. So June 25th, 2009, the Black Coalition Fighting Black Serial Murders, led by Margaret Prescott, and the family members of the victims, they hold this press conference on the corner of 98th Street and Western Avenue. Every news station was talking about the death of Michael Jackson, but these women knew that they had to do something. Like, the murders were still not a priority for Chief William Bratton, or the mayor, or some of the members of the community who had looked down on drug addiction and sex work. So, processing normal DNA matches, like, They weren't hitting in this database. Mm -hmm. So the police, they began processing familial searches. So basically, that's a tool that searches for biological relatives of unknown forensic samples found at a crime scene. Yeah, so this is when motherfuckers really get to thinking. Mind you, the detectives who had really botched these cases, they had since retired. So when people talk about Detective Kilcoin or Cliff Shepard, they really don't hold any ill will towards these men. And they understand that the real fuck-ups happened with the police in the 80s. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, the Chief William Bratton or everybody, you know, was spot on because they still kept a lot of shit a secret, but they did more than what these other motherfuckers had done. So the familial DNA, it had a hit, and it was 28-year-old Christopher John Franklin. Convicted felons at this time, they were required to submit their DNA, and he was hemmed up on felony weapons charges. But Christopher would have been too young, so the DOJ, they narrowed the search down to possible candidates, and it would have been an uncle or a father. Now, the uncle resided in Riverside, California, but it turns out that he was of no relation. So that left Christopher's father, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. So before I get into telling you the background on Lonnie, I want to give y'all the criminal profile of the Grim Sleeper. So, and this is where I get excited because finally we get this nigga, y'all. So, all right. (laughs) Like y'all don't understand. (laughs) I'm so happy right now. So it was said that this killer was profiled to be a male and African-American with an age range of 45 to 55 years old. The Grim Sleeper was believed to be a local resident of the area, you know, of the murder, specifically living within 10 miles of the killings or worked in South Central. It was believed that the Grim Sleeper would have a criminal record for assault. And regarding, in regards to his personality, he would have low self-esteem or no confidence and shooting victims in the chest Gave him the power that he craved. So I want y'all to remember that. Like, keep that shit in your back pocket. So now we're going to get into Lonnie Franklin Jr. Do you have punk any questions, ass babe? Punk-ass Lonnie. <laughs> about time you get to punk-ass Lonnie. Oh, bitch-ass Lonnie. All right, so yeah, let's get into oh. it. So 
Lonnie David Franklin Jr. He was born August 30th, 1952 to Lonnie David Franklin Sr. and Ruby Franklin. Lonnie worked as a longshoreman and Ruby was a former beauty school student from Texas. Lonnie was the second born out of his siblings, so Otis and Patricia, and growing up, he had social and discipline issues. There was an incident that happened during Ruby's pregnancy, though, and this is when she's pregnant with Lonnie. So while driving, his parents get into this head-on collision, and Ruby was ejected from the vehicle, and the crash was so bad that doctors had to reattach her left ankle. So, you know, who knows? Maybe Lonnie got banged up in the belly or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? So the family lived on East 78th Street, and eventually they ended up settling down on 85th. According to reports, though, Lonnie was sick as a child, and he would often have these migraines that really fucked him up, and he would have to lay down in a dark room. I've never had migraines that bad. Have you? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yes. When the only thing you want to do is just have your eyes closed, it needs to be pitch black. It's the worst. Oh, damn. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. I've never had that before. But yeah, I'm sorry you have that. But yeah, but basically, (laughs) okay, that's good. But for Lonnie, like it was repetitive. So in his mid 40s, those migraines were replaced with bleeding ulcers. So when it came to like his health record, it was one thing after the next. But back to his childhood. So Lonnie's father taught him how to drive cars. And this is what started his obsession with vehicles. He realized that basically he was damn good at fixing them. And later on, he would become an accomplished mechanic. At the age of 16, however, he was taken into custody twice for Grand Theft Auto. Then he was booked another time for burglary. He never graduated because he was expelled from Dominguez High School for fighting. Lonnie Sr., though, he wasn't having none of that shit. Like, none of that fuckery. He was like, hey... <laughs> no, no, like for real, like Lonnie Senior, <clears throat> like he told him, you got to join the military. Like you have exhausted your options at this point. You keep fucking up. So in 1974, Lonnie was stationed at Stuttgart in Germany, and he was a kitchen supervisor and was ranked specialist fourth class. April 16th, 1974, Lonnie, along with two other soldiers, they gang rape a 17-year-old girl named Ingrid. And they had attempted to abduct another woman before Ingrid, but they had failed. Now, around 12.30 a.m., Ingrid was on her way home from her boyfriend's place and was sitting and was waiting to catch the train from Zuffenhausen train station to her home, which was about nine miles north of Stuttgart. And y'all, major trigger warning for rape. So a Fiat pulls up next to her And two men, two African-American men, two black men, they jump out the car and ask her for directions. Ingrid was so ready to help them. Like, me personally, if it's 1230 in the morning, like, nigga, I don't even know where the fuck I'm at. Like, you take the shit out of me. I'm so sorry. Exactly. But they preyed on her good nature, right? So Yeah. uh, So what ends up happening? Yeah. So before Ingrid could really process, they had already snatched her up. And got her into the car. Yeah, so they held her at knife point. And they drive for about a half hour before arriving at a dark, empty field. According to her testimony, they raped her from the time they got to that field to when the sun came up. And so, 
I know, like just horrific. Jeez. Now, Ingrid, she was able to walk away with this from her life because she was able to persuade Lonnie to drive her home. And then Ingrid, like she is such a bad bitch. Like Ingrid gives him her phone number and asks him to contact her. Now, Ingrid, I know that sounds crazy, right? But no, trust. No, I know why she did it. I know why she did it. Go ahead, honey. Because niggas ain't shit, but hoes and tricks. <laughs> but no. So Ingrid, she goes to the crib. Like, she takes a shower. She immediately hauls it to the German police. And so at first, like, the German officers, they don't believe her. But then they realize that there were other gang rapes or just other sexual assaults that have been occurring. So they asked her for her help to try to identify her attackers. And Lonnie's old stupid ass. So he calls Ingrid the next day. And then they arranged to meet. But with Ingrid came the U.S. Army officials and German officers. Oh. I know, like... Come through, Ingrid. Come through. <laughs> Come through, Ingrid. So... And they stood by as Ingrid waited for Lonnie to show up. And so the deal was that Ingrid was to drop a handkerchief. And when she did, the authorities were to swoop in, get Ingrid out of the situation, and then arrest her attackers. So when they pull up, like Ingrid hadn't met Lonnie for a second. And he pulls out a pocket knife and he was ready to rape and attack her again. What? Dummy. So Lonnie, like they swoop in and I bet you like... The U.S. Army, or yeah, the U.S. Army, they were just like, Lonnie? <laughs> and Lonnie yeah. was just like, uh. And so he was convicted of kidnap, rape, and the intent to kidnap. And he was sentenced to three years and four months in prison. Now, of course, like this motherfucker deny, deny, deny. And so nobody believed him, even though he tried to blame it on his friends. He tried to blame it on everything else. What ended up happening is that he got a general discharge on July 24th, 1975. And he had only served less than a year. So even though he was sentenced to the three years, he got out early and he was shipped back to South Central. Ain't that fucked up? That's so fucked up. Ain't that fucked up? So now once back home and at the age of 23, you know, this was like a fresh start for Lonnie. And this is when he begins to build up that guy's like, he's just a man of his community and a family man. So he met and married a woman named Sylvia Lino and they had two children. So Crystal was born in December of 1978 and Christopher was born August of 1981. And Sylvia, like still to this day, she is well-respected in her community. And at the time she worked in the school superintendent's office you could see her in church on every Sunday. Uh, so, yeah, she was definitely a part of her church community and stuff like that. Now, Sylvia and Lonnie, their relationship, like them, like their personalities, they were like day and night. So after the military and marriage, Lonnie really had a hard time settling and remaining consistent. But he would work different jobs. And a lot of those occupations stem from his passion and obsession with vehicles. So at one point, Lonnie worked as a garage attendant for the LAPD. That really didn't last long. And then after he left that, he began working for the city in the sanitation department. Then he was a garbage man. Then he worked as a mechanic as well. So the main thing is that he knew South Central like the back of his fucking hand. He knew every alleyway and dark crevice of the neighborhoods. And that really just 
fits the profile of the Grim Sleeper. So, in 1992, Lonnie began receiving disability benefits due to an injury to his arm, and the family was living on West 81st Street, and they looked like a real tight, close-knit family, but he had this dark side and was completely different at night. Over time, Sylvia got her own place, but it's undetermined how long they had been separated. Now, if you remember in the documentary, you know, those mm-hmm. ancient niggas that they had picked up and were riding around. Yeah, they would say that you never saw uh, Sylvia and you never saw Lonnie together. Like, not driving together, not walking together, not going places together. Like, they lived separate lives. Mm-hmm. I remember those eight shit-ass bitch at, You know what? Mm-hmm. Yes, but I remember those bitch-ass motherfuckers. Them, of yeah, all they, the things you cut us, not you... <clears throat> I'm trying, and then those, those, I mean, okay, if, beyond that, if you could get a chance to watch the documentary, I highly suggest it, but it's just mm-hmm. listening to those men speak, like, you all had, you had, you know what, I don't want to give too much out, because no, like, I don't know how you can tap into it, honey, and so, that's the really point is, they ain't shit, and they could have spoke up. Brings me to the next part of this, because I'm going to mention Perfect. them. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do not like them, but. So Lonnie no. eventually, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like people always want to let them use the excuse that they were on drugs as well. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a damn. Like, nah, that, that don't fly with me. They you know exactly what the diluted. fuck they were doing. Yeah. Like you must yeah. have some diluted ass drugs because how do you remember this like 20 something years later? So quickly, so easily. I never thought of that. I never thought yeah. of that. They're in that. They were getting interviewed by that man, and they they were so yeah. He used to do this, did like they were so clear. So like, if you were gonna say, oh, you know, I was on drugs, were you, or that's just an excuse? No, Tuvalo. All right, Tuvalo. so Lonnie, he was eventually viewed as the wealthiest man in the neighborhood. And if you wanted something, like, you went to Lonnie. It could have been crack. It could have been a car. It could have been a microwave. I promise you, this nigga could get it for you. So everybody, they wanted to work for him. And the men who suffered from drug addiction, they did anything he asked. So one man burned cars for him. Another cleaned up his camper carpets. And some of these men were with him while he raped and tortured sex workers. In one situation, a man recalled burning a vehicle for Lonnie. And when he looked into the back seat, like, you know, like this nigga, he looking to see if there are any treasures he could come upon in this car that he's about to burn. Instead, the back seat and the floors of the back seat are just covered in blood. And there's women's clothes in the back seat that are saturated in blood as well. And the interviewer, the guy who's like, and you didn't think anything of this? Like, did you call 911? Yeah, he like... <laughs> Sorry, but you make it happen both to come out. But continue. Listen, yeah, he was like, did you call the police? And he was just like, yeah, I ain't thinking nothing of it. <laughs> like, you toothless motherfucker. <laughs> so, like, yeah, he didn't think anything of it, y'all. And so another man named Jerry, he revealed that he was with Lonnie with half the women that were on the police boards who were missing or had been murdered. It was determined later that Lonnie filmed, took photos of, and tortured women in the camper that was next to his house. And the things he did to these women, y'all, 
We know this through the ancient niggas who wanted their TV time and spoke in those documentaries. And that is how we find out that these women were raped anally and vaginally with screwdrivers and different various objects. Like these women suffered horrors beyond our imagination. Prior to him becoming the Grim Sleeper suspect, he was considered to be a nice guy by all of his neighbors that he had lived next to for decades. They thought this motherfucker was a nice guy. But then you have another motherfucker saying, oh, yeah, like, I saw him torture these women. Yeah, and like, yeah. are you okay? No, I was just about, I was holding it in because you just said it. You're like, how he was considered a nice guy, but yet mm. you witnessed him brutalize women. But he's, mm-hmm. oh, he was a star. And they, when I mean they said in the documentary, all they repeatedly said, you know, we, we didn't understand because Lonnie was such a nice guy. But yeah, I did see one time I saw him take a screwdriver. I was like, wait a minute, the two don't connect, sir. The two does not connect. And what's really quite sad is that, like I said, like this community, they say in the documentary, they had all lived together for decades, y'all. Mm-hmm. And you got one side who is completely, you know, surprised that Lonnie is being hemmed up in this situation. And then you have his best friends. One knew he had the .25 caliber pistol. Another was cleaning blood out the camper. Another was burning vehicles. And another was watching him torture women while he waited for his crack fake. So there Mm. is... We would be fools to say that black men did not help this motherfucker hunt in his own backyard. So I don't want to get too much ahead of myself here. But once the familial DNA search popped up for Christopher Franklin, uh, the, the detectives, they began mapping out the murders and compared them to where Lonnie Franklin Jr. lived. So they discovered 81st Street was the address that Anitria Washington had led the police to decades prior, and that many of the attacks surrounded the area that he lived. July 2nd, 2010, detectives went undercover, and in shifts, they followed Lonnie 24 hours a day, and they wanted to find any trash or food, anything that he had picked up and sat down so they could grab it so they can grab the item and try to get DNA off of it. It wasn't until Monday, July 5th, that they got something off of him. So around noon, Lonnie picked up his girlfriend, Sonia, and his wife's silver Honda. I just wanted to say that slow real quick. And along with Sonia's $2, and they began to, yeah, they began to drive around. Now, Detective Art Stone and other detectives followed behind the car, and this car drove all the way to Orange County, which was roughly 25 miles away. And I kind of had to ask myself, like, why are they driving so far? But then it made sense. This motherfucker is still married. Yes, he's trying to keep it on the low, low. <laughs> this motherfucker is still married. And so now's a good time to mention that there are also claims that he actually had another wife before Sylvia Lino. And this woman suffered the illness of drug addiction. So that might be why he hated black women. He hated sex workers Mm. and he, yeah, he hated women who suffered from the illness of drug addiction. So now the authorities are following him. The car stopped at Buena Park Mall and Lonnie and his girl and his girlfriend and the kids they were followed inside to John's Incredible Pizza Company. 
The detectives watched as they made their way to party room four, where a kid's birthday celebration was taking place. Now, this is when Detective Stone received permission to dress in the company's work uniform, which consisted of a blue shirt and blue baseball hat. Now, it took hours to get this shit, but eventually they had what they needed, which was a fork, two napkins, and other items that Lonnie had left his DNA on. Now, it took a couple days to get the results back, but on July 7th, 2010, detectives, they receive a text from the crime lab, and it confirmed that the DNA matched the genetic profile of the Grim Sleeper, and they wasted no time in arresting him. So Lonnie was outside about to move a car when detectives pulled up around 9.20 a.m., and this is all the same day. They find out that the DNA matched, and they went straight to this motherfucker's house. So the detectives basically told him that there was an ongoing investigation and that they had a warrant to arrest him and search his residence. The next day, the mayor of Los Angeles holds a press conference and basically he says that the decades-long terror had come to an end due to DNA evidence and the exhaustive detective work of LAPD and LASD. (laughs) Baby, the mayor did everything but mention the women who were in these streets keeping vulnerable Black women safe. But guess who was there? Margaret Prescott got up on that podium. She snatches the mic out of the mayor's hands and she tells the crowd that for black women, these horrors have dated back to 1985. And she detailed the hard work that they had put in and and they did the work that the authorities have failed to do. So Margaret said, and I quote, please stop referring to these victims as prostitutes. They are women, they are mothers, they are loved by their communities and their families. Now, the Black Coalition fighting serial murders, I say that they are the real heroes of this story. Like, and then they they went ahead and they held their own press conference, basically to detail what the fuck really happened. Because let the mayor tell it, you know, the police had spent hours and hours and decades and decades working tirelessly to no end. Now, uh, yeah, so they hold this press conference and... They really wanted to get their side of the story out that that between the 80s and now, if these murders had happened in Beverly Hills, they would have yeah. been solved long before 20 something years. Exactly. So back at Lonnie's house uh, during the search, LAPD, they find 180 photos of women. And they find a .25 caliber pistol. Some reports say it was in a closet. Other reports say it was in a dresser. But overall, the police would find over 1,000 photos and several hundred hours of videos, which showed Black women and young girls conscious and unconscious. And from the moment they arrested this motherfucker, he denied, denied, denied. And... Yeah, he was the one in that 911 call that I mentioned in part one. Yeah, because you can hear him chuckle the Mm -hmm. same way he chuckled in that 911 call. Now, when he was... Old punk-ass Lonnie. So when he was arrested, everybody thought it was for stealing cars. Like, even in the documentary, like, these niggas said, like, yeah, like, I thought Lonnie got hemmed up for stealing a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And because at this point, the whole block knew he was a he was a car thief. But still, like, whatever you needed, Lonnie could get it for you. But it wasn't until some of the residents began to vandalize his home 
they were spray painting like killer or murderer in different places on the residence. And then that's when folks really got mad because basically he was hunting in his own backyard. So Lonnie was charged with 10 counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and special circumstance allegation of multiple murders. It is believed and understood between South Central, LAPD, and LASD that there are more victims who have not been identified. Now, two victims, Ayala Marshall and Rolinia Morris, they were identified by photos found in Lonnie's home, but their remains have never been recovered. They have not found them to this day. Even to this day. Yeah, even to this day. There are so many women that are potentially dead who are on these, you know, in this book of photos that Lonnie had in his garage. So Lonnie's capital murder trial began in downtown Los Angeles in a courtroom on February 16th, 2016. And people were already pissed because of the multiple delays. He got caught in 2010. He sat in jail until 2016. Now, Lonnie's defense attorney, Seymour Amster, claimed that the reason for the delays was so he could prepare the best defense he could. But nobody was really buying that shit. So evidence presented against him during trial included the .25 pistol. Anitria Washington came back to testify, and her photo was also found amongst the pictures recovered from Lonnie's garage. And the families, the families showed up. Like, I keep saying, like, I can't stress this enough. LAPD, LASD, and everybody else who looks down on these women, they think that nobody's going to give a fuck. But these families showed up for Princess, for Georgia, for Alicia, for Mary, for Barbara, for Henrietta. They were there. And some of these parents, they were well into their age at this point. So on a normal day, they couldn't make it out of bed. But goddammit, they were there for this trial. Now, Monique Alexander, um, her father, Porter, he was 48 years old when his daughter died. And still, all the way up until the trial, probably to this day, he has not thrown away her belongings. He still keeps them. And I know, just heart-wrenching. And he was 75 years old when the trial began. But they were there. And so was Mary Alexander. She was right next to him, toting her cane. Now, he said, and I quote, that girl meant everything to me. Now, Janisha Peters' mother said, the defendant took my daughter, murdered her, put her in a plastic bag like she was trash. My hope is that he spends the rest of his glory days in a cell, which will become his trash bag. Like, I was just like, God God damn it. Like, y'all go ahead. Like, I love this. So a surprise came when Laura Moore took the stand. Laura was another survivor and told the courtroom that Lonnie shot her on May 5th, 1984. He had lured her into his vehicle, and I guess she had missed the bus. Now, Laura, who was 21 years old at the time, made sure to look around the car to make sure that there was no weapon, and she didn't see a gun, so she got in. Lonnie shot this woman six times and laughed in her face before basically allowing her to get out the fucking car herself. He thought this woman was going to die, but she survived. It's the She's... laughing. That's so uh... evil. She's yes. fucking evil. This man shot this woman six times and thought that he had did her in. 
But she also said on the stand that uh, once she had crawled out into the middle of the road and the ambulances arrived, they were cutting her clothes off to try to save her life. She mm. sees Lonnie pass by the scene again. He went Not back around the back crime scene. Sure. And she looked this motherfucker dead in the eyes. And so even though Lonnie was only accused for the 10 murders and the one attempted murder, the courtroom learned of Sharon Dismuke, Thomas Sylvester Steele, Inez Warren, Georgia Mae Thomas, Ayala Marshall, and Rolinia, Mer- Rolinia Morris during the trial. So they learned of all these new victims that he had been tied to. And so Thomas Steele was 36 years old when he was murdered. He was found dead on August 14, 1986 at the intersection of 71st Street and Halldale Avenue in Harvard Park. DNA linked Lonnie to Thomas, and it is believed that he was murdered because he saw something that he shouldn't have. But I don't want to leave him out because he is the only man, you know, the only black male who may have been murdered by the groom sleeper. So, Mm. yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. Like, that's fucked up. So, punk-ass Lonnie. Punk-ass Lonnie. So, where was I? So, on May 26th, during the penalty phase, you're about to lose your shit. So, May 26th, during the penalty phase of Lonnie's trial, Ingrid took the stand to testify. This woman flew all the way from Germany, and with the help of a German translator, she told her goddamn story. And if y'all are clapping at this fucking point, I don't know what. I don't know what. Yeah, okay, so shout out to Ingrid real quick, because if you really want to put two twos together, this Ingrid was in Germany, correct? Yeah, Ingrid was in Germany. So Ingrid said, oh, you only got a year? Well, look, I'm going to get your bitch ass so you can get more. And literally came back, flew from Sweden to L.A. to make sure that she was a witness. You mean she flew what? from Germany? Sorry, sorry, from, uh, what is it? <laughs> from Germany. Well, I don't know why I said Sweden. But yeah, flew from mm-hmm. Germany to L.A. to make sure... Jeez. Yep, with the help of a German translator. Now, defense attorney Seymour Amster did everything he could to try to prevent her testifying. This motherfucker went as far as mentioning German government policies that restrict citizens from testifying in support of the death penalty outside of Germany due to the horrors of the Holocaust. This motherfucker went so far left. And so the judge basically said, okay, yeah, she can still proceed with her testimony. And then Amster requested a private conference due to Ingrid's husband trying to stare him down. Judge Kennedy, (laughs) honorable Judge Kennedy, basically said, get the fuck on with all that noise. And Ingrid was allowed to continue with her testimony. It turns out that Ingrid went on to live a life of fear after Mm -hmm. being attacked in Germany. But it took great courage for her to come back can can i just pop something in because i googled it Mm -hmm. you want to know the average flight and this is hopefully non-stop from uh depending on part yeah Mm -hmm. it's about minimum 11 hours 11 and a half hours that is determination that lady was like "Mm -mm, look she took that flight to give a 30 minute testimony and god damn it yep 30 minutes she took that flight, y'all, to give a 30-minute testimony. I hope she was living her most peaceful existence. Yeah. Shout out to yeah. Ingrid. 
<coughs> excuse me, yeah, big ups to Ingrid, goddamn. So I want to take a second to quote Margaret Prescott again. So she wrote this brilliant article titled, Don't Disparage the Victims of the Grim Sleeper Murders. Basically, she not only slammed the prosecutor, but also the defense for, you know, further criminalizing the victims during the trial by labeling them as prostitutes and crack addicts. Like, imagine trying to defend these fucking women and you're still labeling them as prostitutes and drug addicts. But, like, I just want to mention Margaret because even from the 80s, leading up through these trials in 2016, Margaret Prescott was their voice. And we shan't forget that shit. So she said, and I quote, the survivor should not have had to wait 22 years before she even knew she was the survivor of a, of a serial killer and family should not have had to find out on TV that their loved ones had been murdered. The community should not have had to wait 22 years before the release of a 911 call that led the police to the exact place where a victim had been dumped. So still, while, yeah, we're talking about Lonnie Franklin and how he ain't shit and how he has committed these murders, she's not allowing the community to forget that LAPD and LASD dropped the damn ball. So during the trial, the defense tried to challenge the DNA because on some of the women, DNA other than Lonnie's was found. They also tried to challenge ballistic evidence saying that other attackers may have been found. Now, None of these tactics worked because Lonnie's DNA was on every single victim and the police had recovered the .25 caliber pistol. They had the weapon. So nice mm-hmm. fucking try. Now the prosecution said to the jury, and I quote, what's it like to die afraid and alone and in pain and struggle to survive? And we heard about that from the coroners when their chest cavities were filling up with blood and they were gasping for air. Imagine what they must have endured in those last moments of their lives and thinking about what their hopes must have been. You know, what were they thinking about as their lives faded away? What were the last emotions that they experienced? Likely, as I said, panic and fear, pain. The defendant chose to end their lives. He acted as the judge. He acted as the jury. He acted as their executioner. For all of this, he deserves to pay the ultimate penalty. And God damn it, I agree with you, boo. For one and a half days, jurors deliberated and found him guilty and recommended the death penalty. And this is what Judge Kathleen Kennedy had to say. And I feel like it's important because up until now, these women, they had suffered in silence. Like these horrific deaths, they died in silence. They weren't covered. Nobody really cared. Like the self-proclaimed righteous folk didn't care. Black men didn't care and the police didn't care, but it was other Black women in the families who had stuck up for the victims. So the judge said, and I quote, all of these women were defenseless. They were not a threat to you in any way, shape or form. And after thinking about it and pondering it and going over it in my mind, I have come to this conclusion that it doesn't matter why. There could never be a justification for what you've done because what you've done is not justifiable under the laws of God or the laws of man. And so it doesn't matter why. Although I am curious and I am sure books will will be written and maybe psychiatrists or psychologists will examine this and come up with some kind of theory to explain it. I mean, it's obvious that you have a deep-seated hatred for women that started long ago. The first crime we heard about was the rape of a woman from Germany. 
So again, this hatred of women is long and deep-seated. Why? I do not know. And I want to be clear that even though all of these crimes that you have committed are horrible, and as I said, without any kind of justification, the sentence that I'm about to impose is not a sentence of vengeance. I believe that society has the right to make the determination that when someone has committed crimes that are as horrible as these crimes are, that society can say that person as punishment and as a protection for others does not deserve to continue to live. I can't think of anyone that I have encountered in all my many years in the criminal justice system that has committed the kind of monstrous and the number of monstrous crimes that you have. These murders of these young women were horrible, and the attempted murder of Miss Washington, all horrible, and the effect of which all of these people have been suffering and will continue to suffer. But hopefully, as many of them said, they feel they are going to receive some peace. And I hope that you are able to leave here with some peace today. But it's not vengeance, it's justice, Mr. Franklin. And so Lonnie Franklin Jr., for the first-degree murder of Deborah Jackson, it is the judgment and sentence of this court that you shall suffer the death penalty. For the first-degree special circumstance murder of Henrietta Wright, you shall suffer the death penalty. And y'all, next came Barbara Ware, death penalty. Bernita Sparks, death penalty. Mary Lowe, Latricia uh, Jefferson, Alicia Alexander, Princess Bertomio, Valerie McCorvey, Janisha Peters, like all of them, death penalty. And then for the attempted murder of Anitria Washington, Lonnie received a life term. Now, the judge told him basically like he was headed to San Quentin and then rejected any notions for a new trial. That is what the judge had to fucking say. And I just thought that that was so important. I just thought it was so important. Like the families and the courtrooms, they deserve to hear that whole fucking spiel. Yeah. Yeah, they, they definitely deserve to hear that. So on March 28th, 2020, around 7.20 p.m., Lonnie was found unresponsive in his cellar at San Quentin. The medical, like medical assistance was given but he was pronounced deceased at 7.43 and there were no signs of trauma and his cause of death, even though an autopsy was performed to this day, they have not told anyone how this motherfucker died. <laughs> Nobody hmm. knows. I must leave it at that. You know, I personally feel like, no, like, no, no. I want to know what I, the fuck happened to him. Did another inmate get to him? Like, I wouldn't be surprised. What were the results of the autopsy? First things first, that's South, South, South LA, right? South Central, correct? Mm-hmm. There's probably many people at San Quentin. All them families? So sorry. Yeah. And, like, and he did, me, he did rape know. and murder a child. And you know how they feel about it. And you know how, yeah, you know how inmates feel about that type of stuff. But so, I just feel like, like not for anybody else, but like we know how the fuck you know Jeffrey Dahmer died. Like, why are y'all holding mm-hmm. what why the fuck happened it? to this man? Yeah, why are y'all holding it? I think they're holding it because they allowed it to go on for so long. It's a such an embarrassment on their system. It's kind of like how that deputy all of a sudden, like you know. Things were dropped and it all just, there was issues with the ballistics allegedly, correct? Correct, yeah. It's it's a way to like save, save face. So however this happened, however he is no longer here on this earth, 
Yeah, it was probably some Whatever stuff the fuck just... happened, I know he's still roasted like a Cornish and in the front of Golden Corral. Not a Cornish Wow. Yeah, you know how they slow roast? I really hope that that's what's happening to Lonnie. And I think that is crazy. If y'all don't know, none of his bum-ass friends who admitted to all the shit that they knew, they were never booked as accomplices. Never. Like, somebody said on TikTok, they saw one of those motherfuckers fishing. I was flabbergasted. Yeah. I was like, what? They said, yeah, yeah they know. saw one of these niggas fishing. He was fishing by the damn creek. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. Which I don't think insane. that that's fucking okay. Yeah, which is cause... insane because you all were aware. You all were aware. One of you burned up a car for him randomly. Another one, you witnessed some of the stuff he did, but you all said he was a good guy, y'all. He was a good guy. Like, oh what? yeah, and y'all, we're free speaking at this point. But do you know in the in the documentary, one of those motherfuckers, I can't remember his name, y'all. I'm actually gonna post the interviews, the ones that I can, to TikTok. So y'all, watch out for that. But one of them said that. He saw the .25 caliber pistol, and in oh, his mind, and in his mind, he thought Lonnie wanted him to win the fucking award money. Like, uh... <laughs> he like, was I like, like, ah, like, yeah, like I thought, I thought he wanted me to win the money. Like, I, like Lonnie, what the fuck is this shit doing in your house? And like, they were literally finding like pictures. Like, these men, y'all, they were literally, they called it comparing notes, circulating these nude pictures that Lonnie was taking of these women, circulating it around, yeah. And that other motherfucker, he was like, yeah, like, you know, like, I'm a bachelor. And this, like, you got about two good goddamn teeth, sir. Y'all are fucking disgusting. That is what y'all are. I know he chews on that one, look at two. But, um... (laughs) But no, though all those men, you know, it almost felt like they were defending him even after the fact, and it was just so despicable and disgusting to even hear how they were talking so highly of him. Like, oh yeah, in the beginning of the documentary, wait, yeah, in the beginning of the documentary, like they were on his side. They were like, no, I couldn't be Lonnie, and they even called the producer. He's a white man from England. They called this motherfucker a Packerwood. And in the interview, he was like, I thought it was a term of endearment. Like, I was, that was screaming. Dumb. That was funny. But they the black him- men, they didn't want the black women to speak in the interview. No. They didn't. They tried to hush them a lot. You could tell they really tried to hush them a lot. But then all saw- had a story to tell. They all had a story. But I think it's just so damn despicable that these men... Like, when they talked about, yeah, you know, he would show me pictures, and I'm like, you don't see nothing wrong with that? Like, y'all don't, you didn't, that didn't come to your your noggin to say, like, this is this don't make sense? Like, you still thought it made sense. Yeah, they did. And the man who was there for all of the torture, and while he was raping these women, the producers asked him, they were like, um you didn't call the police and he was like nah I, I didn't think enough of it and he was like you didn't think that that was wrong and he was like well you know now Ooh. now I really feel like it was bad but like back then nah no 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 and like, then just... he blamed it on the drugs but then as I said earlier you can't be blaming it on like how do you remember that shit man I think I said on TikTok like I know two goddamn crackheads who would call the police before hurting a woman like this is unacceptable it's Very. unacceptable. But yeah, y'all, we have reached 
the end of the Grim Sleeper. Big ups to Ingrid, big ups to Miss Demetria Washington, Margaret Prescott, the Black Coalition fighting against serial murder, all of those women who had hit the streets doing the work that LAPD and LASD were failing to do. Um, I definitely appreciate y'all for tuning in. And AJ, baby, I'm about yeah. to call you, but I appreciate you for coming on to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no problem. Anytime you want to have me again, have me again, babe. Absolutely. Again, thank y'all, and I will catch y'all next time. Bye-bye.